Take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Romans chapter 5. We have two sections we'll deal with this morning from Romans and then from Corinthians. And I'll read Corinthians in, in just a little bit. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read from Romans. Heavenly Father, in your mercies, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes today, that as we read your word, we would understand it, we would see how it is that we are to live in accordance with it, and Lord, that we would move forward and do so. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. From Romans chapter 5, just verses 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. There are a few... uh, very popular preachers in the country who self-confess to never preaching about sin. They never preach about condemnation. They never preach about the hard realities of God's judgment and unrighteousness. Now, the rationale for this is, as they plainly say, is that there's already plenty of bad news in the world, uh, plenty of suffering, plenty of hardships, and they just want to remind people about God's love and His care and His mercies. Now, I certainly can't argue with any of that. The vastness of God's mercy is way beyond what we can understand. His love is so much greater than our own. I mean, it's not until we understand His love that we are able to really love in any substantial way as as He defines it. But neither can I deny that Scripture extensively and regularly talks and, and, and points us to the wretchedness of sin, how much God, this loving God, hates sin and what happens to those who do not repent of that sin and the eternal punishment that is theirs because of that. And if left to ourselves, if left to ourselves, we would get rid of God and we would place ourselves on the throne. That's the depths of our sin. But our passage this morning from Romans even though it talks a lot about sin throughout Romans, this is, is perhaps the greatest passage on love that we find in Scripture. Now, you may say, well, Rand, what about that uh, John thing out of chapter 3? That's pretty good teaching out of, on love. Well, I, I think if I had to, to read back into Paul's mind, verses 6, 7, and 8 are really the, the exposition of John 3.16. Okay, and we'll see that in a moment. This is Paul's expanding upon that, if you would. Now, this is the first time, really, in Romans that that love of this extent is mentioned. It is being given to us, imputed to us. It comes to us at just the right moment when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were still in our sin. Um, If you have no concept of the depths of our sin, how much God hates sin, and how because of our sin we are separated from God's mercy for all time, if we have no concept of that, we will never grasp 
how wonderful his love is, how wonderful it is to live in the midst of that forgiveness and the assurance that comes with knowing of how his love is extended to us who don't deserve it. We are justified because of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. We have been saved because of God's love. And nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Turn over just a couple passages to chapter 8. Just to remind us, just to make sure if you don't have this memorized, you don't have this fixed in your brain, this is one of those passages that you ought to. Um, Now, Abby, for her school, has to memorize Romans chapter 8. So every Thursday or Friday on the way to school, um, it's sinking into me too. But she has to memorize it, and I have to make sure she memorizes it, okay? So chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And, and Paul, after all of this in, in chapter 8, really after all this before that, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. That pretty much covers everything, but just to make sure, he says, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he mentions all these things, and then just as a to make sure that you grasp it, nothing that has ever been created. And that is pretty much what? Everything, nothing that has been created can separate us from God's love as it is demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. So the message of forgiveness and the love of God and the assurance that we have in that cannot be understood outside of the depths of our sin. So God's love really here in in Romans chapter 5 is placed against this backdrop of sin. For while we were sinners... Christ died for us. It would be like uh, saying, oh, here you are in a car accident, and you're sitting along the side of the road, and and you've got, you know, scrapes, and and there's blood, and and your arm is all crooked uh, because it's broken, and the ambulance shows up. And the guys, you know how the ambulance guys are, they pull out, and they get their cart, and they rush up to you, and you and they say, come on, we've got to get to the hospital, and you go, no, 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 let me get cleaned up before I get to the hospital. Okay, let me get this arm straightened and let me get these cuts. I can sew myself. Let me sew these up. You can't. And that's the same type of thing with our sin. You can't say, well, God, I'm going to accept your salvation, but I'm going to get cleaned up myself. Okay, while we were still in our sin, when we were, and, and here are the words that, power, that he uses, powerless and sinners and ungodly and enemies of God. When we were that way, Christ died for us. Not when we look good, when we had it together, when I was really holy. No, that's not when he does it because there's no time when I got it together. There's no time when I'm looking really good and am really holy in God's eyes. Not until he comes and makes me that way. Only when our own depravity can be seen in front of our own eyes can we grasp the depths of God's love for us. If we think, as some still do, that we are inherently beautiful, that we are inherently lovely, that there is something about us that just draws God to us and, and, and it makes him love us. That's just crazy. Crazy. If we think we deserve God's love, then the death of Christ was not necessary because I'm so good. No, I don't think so. 
We must understand that Scripture teaches us that God loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us with our sin. Christ died for us while we were still in our sin. So on this Sunday, in the context of this event right here before us, we understand that his body is given for the sinner, that we might be justified, that we might know forgiveness. His blood is shed, that we might come to the table as saints, that we might come and know this forgiveness and know this grace in our lives. So as we look through Romans 5 here, there are four words that I want us to understand because they're very important to us as they are laid out in 6, 7, 8, and then we're going to jump to 10 and look at verse 10 too. So the first word in New American Standard here is translate helpless, powerless would be an appropriate word, weak, helpless, without strength, feeble, sluggish in doing right. These are all the appropriate definitions of the word powerless or helpless. This means if the, that if we were left to ourselves, we would not be able to do the smallest thing to please God. Oh, man, really? Really? I mean, aren't there, there are plenty of nice people out there who don't believe. Don't they please God? They're not going to heaven. They're not his. They don't rest in his hand. Okay? It's those who believe in their heart and profess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is only then that we can understand that we are really powerless without the Lord. These words, like weak and helpless and feeble and, and sluggish, these are what philosophers called, call unconditional possibilities unconditional possibilities. They are things that under which there is no condition which Randy can affect them. Okay, under no condition can Randy come and change the fact that I am helpless before the Lord. Under no condition can I change the, the fact that I am weak, that I am powerless, that I can possibly get to the Lord on my own ability. There is just no possibility of that. An unconditional possibility means that unless something acts upon me from outside, I can have no effect on it at all. So what are the powerless to do? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says we cannot understand spiritual things. We cannot. John 3 says we are unable to enter the kingdom in our natural state. Romans 3 says we are unable to seek God. Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is impossibility. In our natural state, it is our will to do our Father's desire. And John 8 says, Outside of Christ, our Father is Satan. You say, oh, right, that's harsh. Okay, <laughs> really, that's harsh, Rand. You're telling me that, that if I don't believe in Jesus Christ, then my Father is Satan? Here's, here's the greatest thing about this. Don't blame me. It's what God says. Okay, His word says it is your will to do your Father's will, and your Father is Satan if you do not belong to Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, We are dead in our trespasses. Dead in our trespasses. Powerless to change our natural state. Powerless to escape sin. Powerless to escape death. Powerless to resist Satan powerless to please God in any way. So because of this, we understand that we're incapable of attracting God's love. 
Isn't that great? But while we were still that way, that's when Christ died for us. Let's look at another word, ungodly. Ungodly that Paul uses, wicked, godless, in a state of opposition to God. Not just without God, but in a state of opposition to God. Not apathy, not ignorance, but opposition towards God and towards his will. The ungodly oppose the sovereign God, which is really foolish. I mean, if he's sovereign, how can you oppose him? If he's in control of everything in the world, how can you oppose him? Well, you go back to what I just read, that we are incapable of doing this unless he comes, incapable of believing, incapable of obeying unless he comes and touches us with his grace and mercy. The ungodly oppose the sovereignty of God. They do not want him to rule over any part of their lives. They want to be free to do as they choose, do as they please. They oppose his holiness. They deny their own sinfulness. They oppose him for every one of his great attributes, omniscience, immutability, omnipresence, his mercy, his justice. They hate his constancy. They hate his consistency. If God's love for us depended upon our loving him or our having something that within us made us worthy of his love, then the only thing holding his love to us would be our own consistency. And if there's one thing I know that I am consistently inconsistent. If his love towards me depended upon me hanging on to him, I'm in big trouble. Ungodly. Number three, sinners. Oh, we think we know this word, right? Uh, Sinners, that's pretty straightforward. Those who have fallen short. All have fallen short of God's grace and mercy. Chapter 3 of Romans. Sinner is the same word as wicked back in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. So being godless means being opposed to God. Being a sinner means falling short of carrying out what God wants us to do. Failing to worship him, failing to treat others as God tells us to, failing to care for others. Now look at verse 10 here, and we'll get the final word. So we've got, what do we have? Powerless, ungodly, sinners, and the last one, enemies. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Enemies of God. Now think to yourself, before you were a believer, were you really an enemy of God? Did you actually set up in opposition to God? Did you think, well, whatever God wants to do, I want to do the opposite. Whatever God says, I'm just going to go and pursue the opposite. There's no fence in Christianity. I think we're all aware of that. There's no fence that you can sit on and kind of go, well, I'm kind of in between, you know, I just don't know yet. No, God says you are for him or against him. You are his child, or as Romans 5.10 says, you are his enemy. An enemy sums up the first three and then goes on to define a little bit more. Not only do we oppose God, not only are we violators of his law, not only uh, are we powerless, but we would attack and overthrow God if we could. Understand, in our natural state, outside of Christ, Christ has not changed your heart yet, if left to your natural state, you would overthrow God, you would sit on his throne in your life, and you would toss him into hell. You think, wow, was I really that bad? I don't remember being that bad in your natural state. 
That's what you would do. It means I want to rule my own life. I don't want God to have anything to do with it. I want to be in charge. I want to make my choices. Now, this description by Paul here is not a very happy description. Okay? It's just not, this doesn't sell well on TV or, or if we stopped here, you might go out going, gosh, I am be in real trouble here. <laughs> I could be, I mean, I mean, look how bad I am before the Lord. Look at verses 6 and verse 8. Sometimes it's translated, that first word in verse 6 is translated for, or it can be translated but in verse 8. But, 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 but. You know, sometimes you, you, people are, you, you know, you get your kids or, or somebody who makes an excuse and they go, oh, but, 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 but. Paul says, you are so sinful and you are, you are an enemy of God and you hate God, but... God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, but you wised up and learned what to do and got in God's good graces. It doesn't say that. It says, but God acted. But God demonstrates his love to us that while we were as nasty as sin as we could be, while we were in the midst of it, while we were down there groveling on the floor in the dirt covered with it, at just the right time, just when we needed him, just when we had no other hope, that's when he demonstrated his love for us and sent his son to give his life for us. In demonstrating this love for us, God did not simply extend his hand and say, Rand, grab my hand, get out of the dirt, would you? No. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Just to remind us what it says. came down and got me while I was in the dirt, dead in the dirt, pulled me up, gave me life. He reaches down into this world and grabs those who belong to him, who are dead in their trespasses, and gives them life. So Paul, in an effort to, to give us something to compare this magnificent love that God has for us, kind of shows us uh, it, 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 back in Romans, that, that well, you know, in, in your terms, if somebody was good enough, they would die for them. Okay, you might die for a righteous man, right? I think the Secret Service has been taking a lot of heat lately. But understand, their job, if necessary, is to, to die for the people they protect. Because the president, the vice president, the secretaries, the speakers, whoever they're protecting, their lives are deemed more valuable to the nation than those Secret Service agents, and they'll lay down their lives for them. Okay, And we think, well, that's right. That's, that's just, okay? Here we are on the Titanic, and, and I'm in line for the lifeboat. And here's a guy, and he's got four kids and a wife, and I'm single. And what do I do? Dude, take my spot. And I give up my life that he may go. Because his life's more important, right? I might die for a righteous man. Somebody who has more going for them. Somebody who is more important according to the world. But Scripture says we weren't very important. We didn't have anything going for us. Okay, We weren't righteous in any fashion. And that's the moment that God sent his son to give his life for us. Ephesians chapter 2 lays out exactly where we were. Exactly what we were like. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, dead. There's no life in dead. Okay? There's no helping in dead. Dead is dead. 
in which you formerly walked. That's now we're into Christ has changed your life. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is, who was our father? Our father was Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's that good word again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay, here, here I am. I'm dead. I'm, a, I'm just dead. And Christ comes down and gives me life. Okay, and why does he do this? Look at verse 4. This is, this, this is one place. Now think of all the times you use the word great this week. Okay. I can text grace, or I can text great. So somebody says, hey, we're going to do this. I go, great, or K. Okay. If you get a text from me that says K, that's okay. All right. But great, I like to use that. But let's compare what the last time you used the word great to this great. Oh, that cake was great. You know, we had a birthday party for Dan. We surprised him on Friday. Pretty sure we surprised him. Okay, And, and Lisa made these cake balls. You know, they're, they're these little balls that go on the end of a stick, and they look like old men. You know, they were bald or had a little bit of head here. Well, Dan's 30. He's, you know, pretty close to being over the hill, okay? And, 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 and they were great, okay? They were great. And I think the party was great. And, and, and Sally made him some cinnamon rolls, and I, they were great. I'll tell you what. Let's compare that to verse 4. <laughs> because of his great love. Remember who we were outside of Christ. Remember who we were outside of his love. That's when God sent his son to give his life for us. That's when he died for us. What else in the world can be compared to this greatness here? Remember, this is really, in Romans 5 is really Paul's explanation of this great love that's demonstrated to us in John 3, 3. Okay, it's Paul's expansion upon this. The work of salvation by the Son. The Son was sent by the Father. God so loved the world that he did what? Sent his only begotten Son. His only Son. Because why? Because it was a perfect sacrifice that was needed. Not a good one. It had to be perfect. Think on these words by Spurgeon. When we gaze at the cross, we ought to be constrained to say, does he love me more than him? That he would give him for me? Okay, now that we understand who we are, who we were when we were dead in our trespasses, how powerless, ungodly we were, sinners, enemies of God, that at just the right time God sent his son to die for us, how great a demonstration of love this is, and how our sin made it possible for us, impossible for us to get to God, so God had to come and get us, and it is now God in this great love who guarantees this salvation. How should we come to this table this morning? Let's turn over to... 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Christ died for those who were dead in their sin. The table is those who have been made is for those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ. We have been justified by his work. And now he says, I want you to come to the table and know this as a tangible means of the grace that is extended to you. And you have to do it. Make sure you do it in a worthy manner. Make sure your heart is right. Make sure, make sure you have confessed your sin. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Remember the Corinthians, they just come out of rank paganism. Okay, they were used to having feasts for pagan gods, and in their feasts they would have orgies, and, and it, they were just a mess out there. And they came to Christ, and they're trying to work this out. Okay, so there, there are some things that they have to deal with here. He says, verse 18, For in the first place, when I come together as a church... I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. But there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I'm not going to praise you. So just, just a short version of it. They were coming together, and the Lord's Supper had kind of reverted back to some of their previous experiences in their pagan worship. So the rich people were coming. They were getting there ahead of time, bringing all their food. It was a common meal, and they were eating all their food and drinking all their wine. And by the time the poor people showed up, there was hardly anything left. And by the time it was time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they were half in the bag and really couldn't do it with the right heart. They just did, they just did, had corrupted the whole meaning here. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine his heart so that he can eat it in the proper way. Remember, this meal began back at the Passover. And, and we know the Passover. All the plagues, 10th plague, death of the firstborn. The Lord says, I'm going to protect my people. You kill a lamb, you sacrifice a lamb, you take the blood, you put it on your doorpost, on your lentil, and the angel of death will pass over. While you are in your house and this is happening, you eat the lamb, you eat the, the herbs, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, etc. This was the moment where the Lord was delivering his people from 400 plus years of bondage under Egypt. And it was the Passover meal. And all those who were not covered by the blood, the firstborn died. Those who were covered by the blood of the lamb survived. This is the celebration that they're having. This meal is the remembrance of that salvific event in the lives of the Jews. And Jesus, right in the middle of this dinner, right in the middle of this meal, 
takes it and turns a corner and takes the bread and said, this is my body given for you. And you can just imagine, they're going, what? What did he just do? And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup, not of the old covenant, but of the new covenant. My blood has been shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. He said, you know, Christ was the perfect, the spotless lamb. You never have to make another sacrifice because Christ is making this sacrifice. And this is the table that we come to. This is the place where we come as believers whose hearts have been examined, that we have searched ourselves for sin, that we have searched ourselves for unrighteousness, that we have confessed it and put it before the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me. I want to come to the table and I want to be prepared. You, when I was at my lowest, at my most sinful That's when Christ came and gave his life for me, and you have changed me forever. And now you said, come to the table that you might know his grace, that it might be a tangible means. This bread and juice, it's it's all it is is bread and juice, but it's what the Lord does when we come in the right fashion. Let's pray. Lord, how could we possibly understand this great and and fantastic love unless we understand our sin? For there was never a time when we were, since the fall, since that we were good enough to come into your presence. You have always been at work to make a way for our sins to be covered, for our sins to be forgiven. And finally, At the right time, in the fullness of your time, Christ came. He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. Perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And in his work, according to your call, as you draw us unto yourself, our sins are forgiven and we can now come to your table. But even as believers, Lord, sin remains in our lives. There are problems that we deal with. There are temptations that we struggle with. There are times when we are weak, times when we are feeble. Because even though sin doesn't reign in our lives, enough of it remains that it it pulls and tugs upon us, Lord. So we pray in the coming moments, as we sing, as we pray, that we would examine our hearts. We would see your grace and mercy. We would see where we've fallen short. And Lord, we would confess those things and seek your forgiveness that we might come to the table in a fashion that is worthy, in a fashion that is pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.